So as you turn in your Bibles, let me welcome our audience viewing the live stream at home or watching the video later. Uh, May God bless you and keep you as you turn and look to his word. Do join us here at the church or let us know you're there as we pray for you. Let's read these two verses from the middle of uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and 17 from God's holy word. The Apostle Paul writes this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. May the Lord bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his word. Amen. Amen. Um, I, I like the name Nicholas, and I don't know if it's strictly Polish, but I know it's more of a European name. There's a famous Nicholas Uh, from the uh, 16th century named Nicholas Copernicus. Is that a tongue twister? Nicholas Copernicus. Um, And you probably have heard of him if you've been in school or you can remember some of your lessons. Uh, He's famous for something called the Copernican Revolution. And anybody remember what the Copernican Revolution is? It doesn't have to do with politics per se, although it had implications and it troubled the world. This Polish astronomer, Nicholas Copernicus, was one of the first to publicly promote a change in our understanding of where the earth was in the universe. Instead of a geocentric view that everything in the universe revolved around the earth, this astronomer helped us to see that the earth itself revolves around the sun. We call that a heliocentric view. And and it it scared some people, it troubled a lot of people, and it brought a change to all humanity. Because he had that different perspective. He gained it from his scientific observations. And it's marked, as the encyclopedia says, marked the start of a broader scientific revolution that set the modern foundations for science and allowed science to flourish. That's a Copernican revolution when something so radical about the, a primary assumption is changed. And uh, apart from science, you can even talk about a Copernican revolution uh, in your career uh, or in uh, other areas of life and existence when a basic assumption or perspective is radically changed and alters the course of everything else. It's an amazing concept. As we turn to God's word and Paul writes to us these terms today, he's giving us a little bit of a before and after picture of his own Copernican revolutionary moment. You see, he used to go by the name Saul, Saul of Tarsus, a very proud name among the Jews, the name of Saul. He was a grad student studying under the best professors of the day. And he was zealous. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus. Until one day, he changed from being Saul-centric, not even to being heliocentric, but sun, 
the Son of God-centric. He met Jesus Christ, and there was a bright light that blinded him as the Lord Jesus Christ, in all his glory, appeared before Saul of Tarsus, and his voice knocked the man to his ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul had his conversion and would be known more by his name, Paul, after that. And everything changed. And so here, as he writes to the Corinthians and as he writes to us and talks about how ministry works, he gives us a glimpse of that before and after picture and says there's something fundamental to conversion that makes us see things differently and makes us different. It's not even a a change of assumptions. It's a change in the reality of who we are. He not only talks about his new perspectives, he talks about believers as new creations. So under those two broad headings, let's look at our text this morning at God's inspired word. First, verse 16 talks about these new perspectives we have in Christ. Paul's language is, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. He's talking about how he regards or understands or knows things. I used to look at other people a certain way, Paul says, and I see things differently. So there's a before and there's an after, and the after is now. From now on. Therefore, well, the therefore connects it with what went before. And what had Paul just talked about before, but the, the, the life-changing power of the gospel. Look back with me to verses 14 and 15. Paul was saying there, the love of Christ controls us. That's part of his ministry and his thinking in ministry follows. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died, referring to Jesus on the cross. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. Because of what happened at the cross and its implications for recipients of salvation, I no longer look at people the same. That's what the therefore is there for. Paul is saying my past perceptions are past. Say that three times real fast. Past perceptions are past. The phrase here is, we regarded no, uh, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's a little uh, buzzword of Paul's. According to the flesh. If you have Bible software or use some of the websites where you can search your text very easily, you take that phrase, according to the flesh, drop it into the search box, it pops up all over the New Testament. Because what does that phrase mean? It means uh, this is the worldly way. This is the mere fleshly eyes with which we perceive the world and ourselves. He had said that uh, we walk by faith and not by sight. And he's expanding that saying how we perceive other people is no longer merely our human assessment. Ooh, he's got a really nice tie. And a diamond ring in addition to his wedding band. That man must be successful. That man must be wealthy. That man's got it together. I want to be like that man. That's the way the world looks on the externals. 
Or, or she has such great health at her age. Man, she goes running. She's wearing all the smaller dress sizes. I want to be like her because she's got it all together because I can see on her outward appearance. Past perceptions are past. There are values to making assessments and judgments. I'm not dismissing all of that. But fundamentally, how do we view the worth of a person? How do we view someone's eligibility for the gospel? How do we view someone's ministry in Christ? Past perceptions are past. Paul asserts that the past, unspiritual assessment of people falls short. We've been changed. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Therefore, if we're living for him who died for us, we regard other people no longer according to the flesh. Romans 8 talks about some of that transition, uh, what we are now, life in the spirit. If you know the, the, the outline of the book of Romans, it starts with language about uh, creation and then fall into sin and, and how men sin, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 4 talks about the coming of faith, how men are right with God through faith. Chapter 5 talks about the Christian expressions being in Christ. 6 and 7 talk about our struggle with sin. And when you get to chapter 8, it talks about life in the Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh, there's that phrase again, according to the flesh. Paul has this thing. He likes to just tell it like it is. He says, this is a past way of living. And so in Romans 8, verse 5, he's going to say something positive, but he starts, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That doesn't sound good. Hint, hint. But, one of the most important words in theology, Romans 8, 5 continues, but those who live according to the Spirit Set their minds on the things of the Spirit. He would go on in Romans 8, verses 12 and 13 to say this. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. That's what he says. Romans 8, 12. Not to the flesh, but to live, accord, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You know, when you actually read the Bible and study these passages, you see there's got to be a major difference between the before and after picture. Something's really changed. Paul had this Copernican revolution. Instead of being self-centered, he's Christ-centered now. He's no longer living for himself. He's, he's dying to self. Wow, that shakes the world. Is any of that evident in us? It's interesting here in our text this morning, Paul goes on in verse 17 to say, when he's talking about past perceptions, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. That doesn't sound good at all. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who by the time Paul had written that, was unjustly accused, crucified, dead and buried, but rose on the third day and appeared to the apostles and up to 500 before he ascended into heaven and that same Jesus that met Paul on the road. Paul is to say, I used to think 
of Jesus according to the flesh. Why would he put that in there? Why, why, why would he point that out? Paul, you know, let's not drag up all your old uh, garbage. You know, you're trying to be an apostle. You're trying to, to look sharp for the people you're writing to. <laughs> Don't remind them how much you screwed up in the past. That's part of the point. If you regard others according to the flesh, that's not good. If you regard Jesus only as the historical Jesus, Albert Schweitzer, there's a whole movement in, in scholarship that says, yeah, we don't know if Jesus was God, but he, he was an interesting man. And they have to peel back the layers and demythologize the gospel, get back to, to what's the nitty gritty of this guy, this man, Jesus. Many people in the world regard Jesus according to the flesh. Paul said, I once did it. Turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We were talking about Mark recently, and it's been a while since we read that in worship. Just to pick up a phrase, Mark chapter 6, the first couple of verses. Just to remind you, when Jesus was in the flesh among us, how was he regarded? Well, Mark, he gets right to the point, doesn't it? Mark 6 verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Um, let me pause. Ever go back to your high school reunion? You're kind of successful now. It's, it's Dr. Bissett now. And I got all these kids and they've got wives or fiancés and maybe some grandchildren coming down the road. Yeah, I live in New York. Got a house, got a car. Go to your high school reunion and you want to walk in and be well received. You don't want to flop. That's focusing according to the flesh. The Messiah came to his hometown. And here it's referring to Nazareth, where he grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, as the scripture said of the Messiah. But he's coming into Nazareth. Let's read on. Mark 6, verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They had seen the miracles. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. It's not enough to know that there's a historical man named Jesus who was born in Nazareth. He was, his dad was a carpenter and he was a carpenter. And I think in this text, Joseph isn't mentioned because Joseph had died by that point and the family was still there. They were viewing Jesus only according to the flesh as a historical person. And so they took offense at his authoritative teaching when he laid down, this is who God is. No one comes to the Father but by me. When he started teaching and speaking, he was regarded according to the flesh. This is just the carpenter's son. James Denny, the theologian from the 1800s in Scotland, said, 
It was not the carpenter who spoke with authority in the synagogues and cast out devils who brought in the kingdom. It was the Son of Man, the Son of God, who did these things. They failed to see him beyond according to the flesh. There's another reason why Paul is asserting this about Christ as he writes to those Corinthians. Let's go back to our text. Remember, Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he's making this point. And back there, there were some teachers with some troubling views. They made much of Moses and little of Jesus. They made much of the outward external aspects of their religion and less of the new covenant internal spiritual realities. That's why Paul's battling with them. We walk by faith and not by sight. Come on, guys. And so I think one reason he presents this statement here about regarding Christ that way, and that's a bad thing, is because of his audience, those false teachers. As Derek Prime points out, the Christ proclaimed by the intruding ministers was apparently entirely circumscribed within the covenant of Moses, a Jewish law-keeping Jesus. Their high view of Moses necessitated a low view of Jesus. Do you remember Paul had taken this up in chapter 3? Um, these people, they're very bold. But he reminds them Moses had to put a veil over his face. And he mentioned that their minds were hardened with the old covenant. And he says in chapter 3, verse 16, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we behold the glory of the Lord with eyes of faith. So that's why Paul introduces how you view Jesus. He's not just saying, Christians, let's have a spiritual understanding of humanity. Let's have a right and spiritual view of Christ. And those people who put Christ in the box of his humanity fall short. And don't be distracted if you pick up a commentary and people wrestle one commentary for several pages. Uh, Paul regarded Christ in the flesh. Does that mean Paul saw Jesus with his own eyes before the Damascus road? And, and they all analyzed, could Paul have bumped into Jesus? That's not the point here. He's talking about perspective and spiritual understanding. He's talking about this new perspective. We once regarded people this way. We regard him thus no longer. We regard Jesus or others not merely according to the flesh, but with our new spiritual perspective. Paul's talking about what's happened now. So what separates Paul's past from his present? It's his conversion. That's an important word. He came to Christ. He gave his life to Christ. He was born again, the new birth. There was regeneration. We'll talk about these things in a moment. But his new perspective came with his uh, change of mind, his repentance, and his faith in Christ. I regard Christ thus no longer. He saw the powerful risen Jesus. Boys and girls, when you go to Sunday school class and you think of Jesus walking by the sea or handing out bread or healing people, and you picture a Middle Eastern man in his robes with his sandals doing what Jesus really did, just remember, boys and girls, that's not the whole picture. 
Where is Jesus now? Read Revelation 1. He's back in glory. And his divinity as well as his humanity is amazing to behold. And if he appears in his glorified body as he did to Saul on the road to Damascus, it takes your breath away. We have to have that new perspective. And it comes with the new birth. Greg Guthrie, George Guthrie says, from the moment of his conversion, Paul saw Jesus Christ through spiritual eyes and understood Christ's death and resurrection occurred for the benefit of all believers. As he would say in Romans 8, you've noticed a couple of references here to Romans 8. Here's one more, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Christians, we have this new perspective if we've been born again. And it makes a difference how we view one another. Not just how we view Christ, how we view one another. And how we review the people in the world. I was checked in my spirit uh, a couple of years back. A friend I follow on Instagram posted a picture of some kids who on their, it's an inner city setting. The kids had come and started torn up his lawn, knocked over his little thing in the front yard and and said they came back again today and he goes out on the lawn and part of me is filled with homeowner rage as I'm listening to his story he said, yeah you yelled at him real good and he says I went out there and said hey kids let me tell you my name can I get you something to eat and drink can we find something better to do and he approached them with such gentleness because he saw them as as needing to hear some good news oh Oh, was the spirit at work. Conviction. My own heart was broken for having fallen back into this view regarding them according to the flesh. I wasn't dying to myself. It wasn't even my lawn and I was already invested in the story. And I'm being vulnerable. You know I'm not perfect. But the spirit will teach us and he will challenge you to view others through new eyes. How many people came to Jesus during his days on earth with really imperfect faith, lots of problems, even some presumption, yet Jesus, filled with compassion, healed and taught and lingered In the crowd, a woman who had been bleeding touched the hem of his garment and he felt power go out to heal her. And he said, who touched me? Not to be angry at her, but to continue care, to clarify that it is your faith that has made you well. We need this new perspective. Our world has gone fanatical according to the flesh. I call you out. No more. No more. Let's look at the second part of our text here. These two verses. 
Notice how they both begin with therefore. These are two grand pronouncements. This is a hinge to his chapter, talking about ministry and then talking about God's work in us and all these wonderful things, and it'll lead to the expressions of joy and so much more. But here in verse 17, he says, therefore, as if stepping it up one more notch, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Oh, it takes your breath away. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And sometimes it's, it's intimidating to a pastor to have to preach. And one of the amazing verses, John 3, 16, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. These are big banners of truth. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's good news. Let's put that in our heart. Let's memorize that verse. What this declares is, is the means of our being uh, made born again. It's in Christ. And, and it talks about the results. We are a new creation. Uh, that old stuff, that's gone. It's on its way out. Let's break it down and just look at the phrases. In Christ. In Christ. These are potent words that describe Christianity. You know you're a Christian if you are in Christ. Paul starts it as a conditional statement. If anyone is in Christ. Oh, he's writing to Christians. And he's talked about the great change Christ brings us. And how we see differently. So if you're tracking. And if you see Christ differently. If you are in Christ. That's because you're a new creation. He's talking about a new perspective. And now a new reality. If anyone is in Christ. That's pointing to our relationship with Christ, which is a relationship by faith. We don't just live in Jesus' house in between things. We don't just um, bring Jesus into our life. Our life is hidden in him. And that's a spiritual expression for putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting him. Kent Hughes says this phrase is the biography of every Christian. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's why so many Christians celebrate their Christian birthday almost as vigorously as their physical birthday. Be happy if you have a birthday this year. Spiritual birth by faith in Christ. It describes our union with Christ. And union is one of the theological truths that this phrase points us to. Not just the new birth, but the new reality that I have been born again and now am in union with Christ. To be in Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians, just a couple letters uh, further into the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read that first paragraph beginning in verse 3. And I will read it and emphasize, as I've done in the past, those words in Christ. And what's your takeaway? Being a Christian and being blessed and all the Christian benefits come to those who are in Christ. You have to have your faith in Christ. Hear what it says in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us all in, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. In him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, the apostle continues, you also when you heard of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let me just ask, is it possible to be a Christian apart from Christ? Can you just lift the Christian ethic? Can you follow the Christian commands? Apart from Christ, you cannot. You have to be in Christ you know, the whole Old Testament even pointed to God's deliverance in Christ. Do you remember one of the very first pictures of salvation? You have to go all the way back to Noah's Ark. All the animals and Noah and his family survived God's judgment on sin. How? How did they survive? They built an ark. Well, what, what did they, they built the ark as God commanded. And the animals came. But how did they survive? How were they preserved? How were they saved? They had to be inside the ark. And even if you go back and study it, you'll see that it was God who shut the door for them. It was God who secured them in the ark. And he covered the door and the outside with pitch. And applied all that was necessary for their safety. Noah's ark is a type of Christ. To be in Christ is to be able to survive and be saved when the judgment of God comes. When we have to give an accounting for our sins, we're found in Christ. Other Old Testament imagery too. One you might not think of is the, is the political one. Those cities of refuge, if you've heard of that. If someone uh, is involved in an accident and people are accusing you of murder and before somebody takes their revenge, you can flee to a city of refuge and in the walls of that city, you are safe until justice comes. In Christ. Those are the means to being a new creation. Let's look at those terms. New creation. Our text says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What does he mean by creation? Well, in the Greek, the, the word here is a created thing or, or that which is the act of creating the result of that. It's a noun, a created thing, a creature. We see this same word used. Let me give you a couple of references. Romans 1.25, talking about men in their fallen state. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So it's 
creation. That's the term here. Or another use, Romans 8, 39, reminding us of God's protective power. Verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Creation, that's a simple term. And here's one that might rattle us a little bit. The same word creation used in Hebrews 4, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is a creator. And creatures will give an account to him. We're created in Adam. Our human likeness, our human nature, and that brings with it sin. And we confirm that sin with our own choices. Mankind are born in sin, and we live in sin until we're converted. Our old nature, our created status in Adam, according to the flesh, is not going to be allowed into heaven. There needs to be a change in our creation. So Paul here uses this language of creation, not only calling us a creature, but what did he say? Up in verse four, chapter 4, verse 6. Do you remember he used creation language there? He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He uses creation, creative power-like language, to talk about our new being as Christians. Genesis language. In the book of Acts, Paul explained himself often. If you need a little help with New Testament history, read through the book of Acts. It only goes as far as Paul, you know, getting to near the end of his life, and then it stops. Acts 28, and uh, we're kind of living in Acts 29 and 30. Um, But in Acts 26, Paul is giving an account of his commission, why his life. He's explaining his Capernaum revolution. And this is what he says, Acts 26, verse 18. Uh, His commission included this call to open their eyes, the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. Paul's explaining his commission in his gospel in Genesis language, turning from darkness to light. This kind of new creation... He would later write in the the grand, eloquent uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians, when you get down to verse 10, he says, if anyone um, were saved by faith alone, through grace alone, he gets to verse 10, he says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ unto good works. A Christian is a new creation. We're a work in progress. We started and, and there's something new about who we are, our createdness. But here's a footnote, and it's an important footnote. You do not get a new soul because the soul is who you are. Rather, your soul gets saved. Your soul gets cleansed. Your soul gets revitalized. It gets regenerated. You know, before I was a Christian, I was a pretty fast talker. I think quick on my feet and talk, talk, talk. Now all that's changed. I used to have a sense of humor before I was a Christian and a little bit of a prankster. Now all that's changed. 
when you become a Christian, you don't get a new soul. You don't get new faculties as though you've got a new component in your cerebellum that allows you to be spiritual. It's the same faculties, but they're cleansed and they have new qualities. That's a precision we need to think with. Uh, Thomas Watson, I'm going to talk about him next, but he had this illustration. He's talking about a lute, uh, uh, which is like a guitar. So I'll say a guitar. He says, With the, it, it, our lives are like a guitar. We don't get new strings, but now they're properly tuned. In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive, we're made new. We're brought up to speed in Christ's likeness, fulfilling God's purposes for us. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature. That's our status. Now, you see in my outline, I need to mention some notable cautions, so let me do that quickly. In reading Thomas Watson's sermon on this, he, he brought these up, and I said, that's fantastic, that's clear thinking, that's careful thinking, because we might be making assumptions about what the new creature looks like. And how do I know if I'm a new creature? Well, let's take some things off the board. Let's take some, some options out. He talk, Thomas Watson talks about counterfeits of the new creation. And he had a list of seven. I narrowed it down to four. He says, first, a moral person is not the new Christian creature. A moral person. Someone with virtue and liberality. In the eyes of the world, they look very moral. I know a lot of those people. I see some of them coming and going from our church or in my life, in the, in the local organizations in town, doing good stuff. But being a moral person is not the same as being born again by the Spirit of God and being found in Christ Jesus. Morality falls short. Thomas Watson said, there's nothing of Christ in mere morality that fruit is sorrow, which sour, which grows not on the root of Christ. And then he gave this figure of speech. If you, if you want to read a Puritan that's easy to read and has a lot of homey analogies, read Thomas Watson. Oh, I could tell you three or four books. They're just so easy to pick up. And the, the clarity of thought. He, he gave an example here. He says, a moral person is not the new creation. The difference between that and the true Christian is like the difference between a meteor and a star. Okay, I had to stop and think. We know what a star is, right? Gaseous, burning, blazing thing in the heavens. Meteors, you can see a meteor, right? It goes through the sky and, and it gets bright if one's coming. The, the Percival meteor showers or comets and things like that. But what's the difference? Watson makes us think, what's the difference between a star that has its gases and it's burning and a meteor? A meteor is just a rock. It's got no gas. It's got no fire. But in friction in the environment, it creates the glow. A moral person is just a meteorite. They might glow a little bit, but they don't have the fire of virtue within them. Second, counterfeit would be the educated person. An educated person alone is not a new creature in the sense of scripture. Yes, education can refine us and cultivate us. It can guard us and inform us. And we have this great head knowledge. 
Oh, I believe Jesus lived and died. Yeah, I've heard that. I believe that. A mere educated person is not a new creature. Third counterfeit is the formal list. They're about formalities. And I could also call this the religious person. Um, Formalist, uh, he says, may perform all the external parts of religion. They can pray, they can fast, they can give alms. But notice how devout that were the Pharisees whose hearts did not bow at Jesus. He used this phrase, formality is uh, the parody of piety. Formality is just the parody, the mimic, the caricature of real piety. Formality, don't just be a formalist. You've been doing all the do's and avoiding all the don'ts. You have a Bible, you carry it, you come to church, you're, pastor, I'm trying to do everything. That's great to a point, but you need to have that inner change, that reality. A fourth category, and it's a combination of a couple, uh, to be an emotionally sensitive person towards God is not a new creature. Jonathan Edwards struggled with this in his day when there was true revival going on. A lot of people started weeping and crying or singing with joy, but that was just their emotions. They had no roots. Those weepers and singers, kind of like Herod, when John the Baptist would teach and challenge him, he said, oh, this is really interesting stuff. I'm, I'm deeply moved, John. Or they watch the Jesus movie. Oh, that's so sad. Except for the ending. You know, just because you're emotional about the things of God, that doesn't mean you're a new cre- creature. You've got to be changed from within. How careful we must be not to settle for counterfeits, but to desire that all men and women would be new creatures in Christ. So here's three closing words. Number one, a conversion is necessary. A new birth is necessary. You are not going to heaven. You are not right with God unless you have a similar before and after story. Have you met Christ? Has he converted you? Has his spirit come and brought about the new birth? You remember Jesus had a dialogue with a religious leader named Nicodemus who came to him by night, had some questions. John chapter 3, and Jesus said a couple of times, he repeated it, and he got down to basics. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. So when you, when you hear born-again Christians telling you you must be born again, your problem isn't with them as much as with the truth of Jesus. Because Jesus said it, and he repeated it. Conversion, the new birth, is necessary. The distinguished uh, theologian James Packer, now with the Lord, said, Jesus' point throughout John 3 is that there is no exercise of faith in himself as the supernatural Savior, no repentance and no true discipleship apart from the new birth. You can visit with Jesus, you can study Jesus, you can feel about Jesus. You must be born again. And as our verse next week, verse 18, will tell us all this is from God. Charles Spurgeon had a wonderful story and he wrote his autobiography, well worth reading. 
how he grew up. His grandfather was a pastor. He lived with his grandfather, read his grandfather's books, but he struggled at length. When will I feel saving grace? He knew it all. He could explain the doctrine that he heard in church or from his family, but he knew it just couldn't just be on his lips. It had to be in his heart. And as Spurgeon said that one wintry morning sitting in a Methodist chapel, when the deacon was preaching, look unto me and be saved. And Spurgeon found his heart changing at the preaching of the word of God. Or as the Wesleys used that expression when they understood their conversion, they were religious, but when the moment of conversion came, they felt their heart strangely warm. The word of God and the spirit of God work, blow where they will. And it is my prayer each and every Sunday when I stand here with my Bible open, that you, dear people, would hear and believe. That you take God at his word and trust him for the salvation of your soul. That you would be new in Christ. There's no other way to face God on that judgment day but to be found in Christ. He whom you know Trust him. Cast yourself upon him. The new birth is necessary. Secondly, carnal distinctions should give way to spiritual. That was Paul's whole first point. We don't regard people the same anymore. Just because I see people in church, I know People can sit in church, that doesn't make you a Christian. You can sit in your garage, that doesn't make you a car. So we've got to stop just judging from externals. Carnal distinctions, fleshly distinctions should give way to spiritual. Kent Hughes said, because of the gospel, Paul and all believers are to be done with their shallow, external, carnal regard of Christ and others. Especially those who are of the household of faith. And this goes against our society, which judges externally. Um, Ken Hughes had a funny comment. He said, it seems to him that People magazine is the devotional literature of our day. And he was writing 30 years ago when he said that. This probably would be Instagram, right? The devotional literature of our day. We've got to see what, uh, what we aspire to as we do our devotions. Because our culture is elevated image to a moral virtue. My friends, we must regard people differently. We must be done with that. Finally, Christian newness. If anyone was in Christ, he's a new creation. My friends, that lasts forever. I remember a little while ago uh, talking about one of our appliances. I don't know if it was our refrigerator. I said, well, it's pretty new. I don't remember what it was. Or, Isn't that new? No, we've had that forever. And look, it's part, starting to break. And what do we say when we have something new? It's new, but then what does it immediately? It begins to get old, and eventually it gets replaced. You can buy a new car. I bought my very first new car in 2011. It's still on the road, but it's not a new car anymore. Brothers and sisters, the Christian newness is newness forever. Forever. Heaven is a place where rust does not take its toll. Moth, thief, 
It's new forever. You need nothing more if you're new in Christ. Nothing more. The work he's begun in you, he will see to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The blessing of being new is it fits us for communion with God. Fits us for eternity. I love what Paul says in chapter 1 of Colossians. I end with this. He's praying for those Colossians. He's giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for saving grace. We thank you for the new birth. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came to give himself for us and to us and to join us with him. The shepherd gathers the sheep and we become believers if we are in Christ. Father, help each and every one hearing the gospel to believe it and obey it. To long to be with Christ now and forever. Help us all, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.